You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your And welcome to episode 128 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Alexis Neal, and with me today are Carla Godwin and Jessica Harden. Hi, Carla and Jessica. Hi. Hello. Before we get started with our discussion, let's go ahead and introduce ourselves for any listeners that might be new to the program. Uh, Carla, why don't you go first? Sure. I'm Carla Godwin, and I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, with my two daughters. Um, Let's see, I work, I'm an operations director for the Graves Foundation. I have a master's degree in English. I formerly was a director and founder of an organization called She Is Called that worked toward gender equity in religious spaces. So that's what I do with my work time. With my, uh, let's see, leisure time, I love to bike on the bike trails in Minneapolis, which are fantastic. So yeah, that's me. All right. And my name is Jessica Harden, and I'm in Rock Hill, South Carolina. I live here with my husband and our two boys, who are six and three. And right now, they occupy a whole lot of my time, as I'm sure every parent in the pandemic is feeling right now. My background is actually in emerging infectious diseases and biohazardous threat agents, and I used to work tracking pandemics. So this pandemic is definitely of interest to me. Um, Right now, I am home with my boys, and when I have free time, I enjoy painting and drawing. All right. Thank you, Jessica. Uh, I'm Alexis Neal, and I live in southern Missouri with my husband, Coyle Neal, of the City of Man podcast. And uh, by training, I'm an attorney, but these days I'm mainly focused on adjusting to my new role as a homeschool mom of two-ish. My youngest is actually not school age yet, but he's still around, so he still counts. Um, I'm also on my local city council, which means I've been spending a lot of my time thinking about public health and the local economy and the proper role of government just like everyone else, I guess. Um, Anyway, uh, we're here today to talk about a book uh, that came out last year. Uh, The book is called Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men by Caroline Criado Perez. Uh, And um, there is a paperback edition, but it's not coming out till next year. So I highly recommend this book to our listeners. Um, But if you don't have uh, the opportunity to read it, Um, I will warn you, we're not going to be able to cover it in detail today, uh, but it is worth a read. Fortunately, the folks over at the 99% Invisible podcast um, have an episode about this book that gives us you a good overview as well. So if you're looking for more information about the book, um, that'll be uh, in our show notes. For our purposes today, I'll just go ahead and give you a brief summary. Um, In this book, Criado Perez identifies what she is calling the gender data gap. Uh, So the the ways that women, their needs, and their experiences are overlooked or left out of the equation um, kind of across the board, Uh, hence the title Invisible Women. For Criado Perez, this invisibility basically comes in three broad categories, the invisibility of the female body, the invisibility of unpaid labor, 
and the invisibility of male violence against women. She gives a whole litany of examples to illustrate this data gap. Uh, some of them are ridiculous, some are perplexing, and some are downright horrifying. Uh, I've never recommended a book by saying this book made me so angry before, but when I read this book, it made me so angry. Um, some of the transgressions she identifies are, are sort of understandable based in designs or practices that were developed for historically predominantly male spaces and then not updated or altered or reevaluated once women started to enter those spaces. For example, uniforms that are um, worn in the armed forces or in law enforcement. Uh, other examples would be illogical at any time and in any place, like not including women in medical research uh, as, as subjects of that research. Um, despite the fact that the condition being studied affects both sexes. Um, Criado Perez breaks the book into sections on daily life, the workplace, design, going to the doctor, public life, and the effect of war and natural disasters and other times of crisis. The conclusions that Criado Perez uh, draws are not terribly radical. Um, first off, we need better data collection, specifically sex disaggregated data. And two, we need female representation in all spheres of life. So fairly conservative, fairly reasonable uh, asks at the end of the day there. Uh, ladies, I'm curious, did you find um, Criado Perez's overall argument persuasive? And uh, what's your favorite terrible example from the book? Jessica? Yes, so I, I I found her persuasive insofar as um, she really does just overwhelm you with examples. And Alexis, I had a similar reaction. The book made me angry. Um, there were certain times that I, I had to quit reading it because it simply, it, it really does just kind of overwhelm you with the lack of or the invisibility of women within so many different spheres and, sec and sectors of society. Um, the one point that I found it less persuasive is that because it was so overwhelming in terms of of how um, how she's portraying it as just this gigantic problem, which it is, I I actually found some of the things that she would put out there I, I think would have been benefited by seeing a little bit of the other side. So a slight rounding out, and I think we'll get into this in some of the other um, in some of the other later discussions, but. There were some of the issues where it's like, well, it would have been really good to hear why they did it that way. So for scientific examples, um, I'm actually familiar with this because my background was in biology and then studying infectious diseases. It became quickly apparent that, yes, you would use male mice or um, you would find studies that were based on male subjects. And pharmacological studies are often heavier on college male <laughs> individuals because they're simply easier to recruit. So um, some of that she does outline, but overall, I think I would have found it more compelling um, and, and perhaps less angering and maybe allowed me to engage with it more intellectually as opposed to just being outraged by it. Um, but, you know, if you the outrage does kind of motivate you towards action. Um, so with that, my favorite terrible example um, I unfortunately have had experience with recently, and that is that crash test dummies are normed to male bodies. And what does that mean? That means that where the airbag hits is going to be just right for a man. And where the seat where the seat belt is going to land on you will be, I won't say just right, because it's, a, it's normed towards an average size male. So if you're on the small end or the large end, but the spinal column, the 
pelvis, all of that is normed towards a male body. And female bodies are different. We are lighter, our weight distribution is different, our pelvises are different, our spinal columns are different. Our necks are actually longer. And so that means that when the force of an accident hits us, we, our heads react in different ways. So unfortunately, I was in an accident about two and a half weeks ago and all the airbags deployed, my back axle was actually broken, the impact was on the driver's side. And so I ended up with a concussion from the airbag. And one of the things that Criado Perez mentions is that oftentimes a reaction to a woman um, not being a man is to tell her to be more manlike. And one of the things I came across when researching, you know, concussion after an airbag, like who thinks you're going to get a concussion from an airbag accident? But one of the, one of the things I came across was this really maddening um, legal advice uh, towards companies suggesting that they make their, their warnings about proper positioning with airbags, make those warnings a little bigger so that people can see them better, women in particular, because they tend to sit too close to the steering wheel. And they, that just struck me as like almost laughably horrible because if you are too small, then you, your feet can't reach the pedal unless you scoot closer to the steering wheel, which is going to put you in an out of position driver position and make you more likely of having injury. Um, I forget the exact statistic, but the number of women that die from car accidents is is noticeably higher um, than men. So, you know, if you are a woman who is in a car accident and you the airbag deploys on you or whatever it may be, however the crash, the impact affects you, um, it seems that the cars are not as good at protecting female bodies than they are at male bodies. And even the attempt to include a female crash test dummy, the only way um, that it was included was it's actually just a scaled down version of a male dummy. And so it's just a smaller version of a male and our bodies are not smaller versions of males. So unfortunately that is, that has hit close to home here. Um, and also, Side note, she doesn't talk about this, but I've since learned the majority of concussion data has been taken from studies of males. And so it appears that men are diagnosed, um, men seem to have a, an easier time of having a concussion. Their symptoms tend to resolve faster, but it's not clear if that's because they actually do recover faster or if they're identified quicker and given appropriate treatment faster and therefore recover quicker. So should you be unfortunate enough to have a concussion, I would highly recommend you look out, um, check out some of the resources online that will kind of help you understand what treatment should look like. So I did find it convincing and yeah, that's my favorite terrible example. It was quite timely to have learned about that. Sure. Thanks. Uh, Carla, what about you? Yeah. Um, I absolutely found it persuasive, um, and enraging, right? I also felt, rather furious often as I read it. Um, yeah, and I think what you were just saying, Jessica, like you were talking about um, them saying, somebody, the legal legal advice saying to print those advisories larger because women sit too close to the steering wheel, right? It's that it's that modifier of two that starts to blame women for the for what they're needing to do to function in a, in a vehicle designed for a male body that, that that sets the male as the center, right? So it's not that she's sitting too close for her own well-being. It's saying, you know, for her own ability to drive, she's sitting too close in a vehicle that's designed on male standards. Does that make sense? So that modifier two is the problem there because it makes 
the male default, which we'll get to, I think, a little bit further um, on into the conversation. But that that kind of thing was just fascinating to me that the, that very often what she ex- described was something like you're talking about where a vehicle or um, a data set or whatever was designed with a male center, a male default. And then if women weren't aligning with that, rather than uh, address the sort of assumptions that were being made by that data, and, and wonder if it's correct, women were told to correct themselves to that data, to use the data as the center point rather than their own experience. Um, and that thing where you just feel a constant, a constant state of being um, critiqued by your own experience, like you're not aligning with what the world is asking of you, even though you're, you're trying, <laughs> I think is a common uh, experience for women. And this book in part just made me go, oh, the world is actually asking something, it's asking me to be, uh, a male, like it, it has actually been designed for male experience. So the fact that I'm regularly feeling out of step is is actually just the correct experience for me to be having because um, because I, I actually am out of step. Um, so that that I found fascinating. I think that um, goodness, there were a couple of things that felt infuriating to me, and um, one of them was um, similar to yours, Jessica. She talked about. Heart attack symptoms have, have been described um, only in male terms. So male heart attack symptoms and female heart attack symptoms are different. They're, they're starting to discover, but for the longest time, they've been only described in male terms, which means that they'll come up with symptoms like chest pain and pain in the arm and that kind of thing, shortness of breath. And uh, when a woman has a heart attack, often her symptoms are different. So she feels super fatigued. She may still have the shortness of breath, but it's, but it's entirely different. So what she's been trained is a heart attack is not what she's exhibiting. So she doesn't even know to think it's a heart attack. And then when she goes in with a heart attack, um, they're not able to diagnose it as quickly. Um, and, and still, even though they're starting to discover that women's symptoms are different, what they're saying is that women are coming in with atypical symptoms. So they're being um, defined as atypical instead of female typical. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So that that thing was, was infuriating to me. Um, and the other one was was the way that she talked about um, talked about academic careers and trying to get tenure and how there's a default um, uh, preference for male uh, names and bibliographies, which means that males are getting quoted more often, which means they're getting published more often, which means that female academics just have a terrible time actually getting tenure um, in lots of ways that are that are just based on uh, a preference for a male name. So yeah, those were those were my like super infuriating moments. Yeah, I had a couple. Some of the moments that were they weren't necessarily infuriating, but they were sort of like what you said, kind of light bulb moments. One was when she mentioned designing like cabinet height and counter height, and sort of like what you said. Like I always just felt like, oh, well, the, the problem is me. I'm too short. <laughs> and and in reality, the cabinets have been designed for an average male height. So the fact that I have to get out a stepladder to get dishes out of my cabinets um, is a direct result of the fact that, that these were built for someone else's body, um, which I thought was really interesting. And she had a similar section on, uh, on um, smartphone size, that the smartphone is designed for a male hand to be used one-handed by a male hand, but that a, a woman's hand is often too small to be able to use a smartphone with one hand. Um, and, 
And some of the smartphone stuff was really interesting, like some of the fitness trackers that require that the phone be in your pocket. But of course, if you're a woman and most of your clothing doesn't have pockets or doesn't have pockets that can accommodate an enormous smartphone, um, then obviously those fitness trackers and, and different things are going to be of limited use if they're sitting in a purse on your desk or on your kitchen table. Um, some of those ones were, were particularly eye-opening, even though they weren't the most um, anger-inducing um, uh examples from the book um well uh can i jump back to one thing on yes. carla carla related to yours this one piece stuck out to me and infuriated me and it was talking about um even when someone finally has been diagnosed with a heart attack and admitted this is in the uk the levels that they're looking for um, were based off of male levels of, I forget what it was, I think it might have been an enzyme to show that they'd had a heart attack, but the levels in women are actually different. And so she was providing this like absolutely heart-wrenching kind of account of if someone has come in and you're very, very sick and you need to go to this specialized cardiac unit, you can't go because your levels don't look like they're sufficiently terrible in order to gain access. And it just, yeah, that, I found that just appalling. So I just wanted to tag that on there. Right. Did you, did you all listen to the podcast, the 99% invisible podcast? Yes. Yeah. Yes. One of the things she said on there um, was that in her Twitter, it sounds like she's very active on Twitter. This person, I found her um, just invigorating. Like she's super clear headed. She's super just straightforward and clear um, and, and also angry. <laughs> but okay. <it's> <laughs> quite active on Twitter in these conversations. And she was saying that some medical researchers had attacked her somewhat on Twitter. And, and she was like, but you're not, you're not doing the sex disaggregated dis data like you need to. And they were like, but we can't test women because they have periods <laughs> and it blew our data off. And that was, it's just such a, like, that's the, that's a demonstration of the very problem. It won't throw your data off. It will give you a full data set. Right. But it will throw your data off is to say that data is only valid and real if it's male data. You know yeah. I mean? it, it ignores the fact that if it'll throw your data off because a woman metabolizes a drug differently when her body is menstruating, that means that it's going to affect her body differently when she's menstruating. So you need to know how to titrate doses for her depending on where she is on her cycle. Right. So it, it just, it, but the, their response just so demonstrates the point, you know, um, that, that they were feeling offended that she would call that out when what she's trying to say is actually the data that you have is not sufficient. You actually do have to include menstruation in your data set or you're not, you're not going to, like you're saying, Jessica, dose correctly or whatever else. So, yeah, that and then can I do one more example that I thought was just kind of a. There are just so many good ones. Please I, do. And I know we I know we need to be aware of time, but the one about um, uh, restroom lines, at especially she was talking about at the theater particularly, um, but how uh, at intermission at a at a you know play you'll go out into the lobby and the the line for the women's restroom is forever long, and then the you know men don't even have to think about it really. And part of what I thought was so interesting is that she said it's always been the default that men's and women's restrooms have the same, you know, footprint, square foot wise. They have the same footprint. But what never is taken into account is that if you fill a bathroom with cubicles, with stalls, then you have less um, toilets per square foot than you have in the male restroom where you can have a, a wall full of urinals, right? So actually, capacity-wise, the, the men's restroom has usually a higher percentage of capacity than the women's. And then she's, she was talking about just that, you know, 
more often women will be going into a restroom with a child or an elderly person or someone who they have to care for. And also, again, with menstruation, if a woman is menstruating, her time in the restroom is going to have to be longer than a woman who is not and for sure longer than a male, you know, and uh, just that, that that isn't taken into account. But instead, we just assume that women are supposed to wait in line or that something's sort of wrong with women, that they all have to pee at the same time. You know, there's just sort of like a it's almost like uh it's, jo it's jokeable, it's laughable, and yet it's actually a design flaw <laughs> in the way that we set up our public restrooms. And right. I think it's reinforced by the invisibility of our bodies, right? Because you're ignoring the fact that we have organs that do different things, and so therefore our needs in the restroom are different. And, you know, I think you get oftentimes it's, oh, well, she's powdering her nose for too long. And no one wants to be the person that's like, well, no, I have legitimate things that need to be done in the bathroom and they take longer. <laughs> it's yes, it does. And I think that just gets to her point about how our difference and is invisible. Like we don't talk about it and therefore it's not baked into designs. Right. Um, well, as you can see, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack um, from our book, and unfortunately, we don't have time to consider all of it today, but we are going to focus on a few angles that are of particular relevance to us as Christian feminists, uh, beginning first off with one of the foundational ideas that drive this data gap and has some interesting theological um, uh, implications. So Carla, do you want to talk about our first uh, issue in the reading section? Sure. Um, so this is the idea of the default male. And this is something that um, Criado Perez lays out really beautifully and, and carefully. Um, but also it's just an obvious. Um, and she talks about the fact that when we say almost when we talk about a person, we just say generally we're talking about a person. Most of us actually visualize a man. And she says she herself. It was partly when she realized that when she would think about a person of any kind, doctor, lawyer, cyclist, whatever, she was visualizing a male. And when she realized that, she thought, oh, I actually think that that's what most people do. And then she started to get curious about how that was playing out in our daily lives. So I feel like there is a bit of a chicken and egg question about how that happens. How did we all get to the point where we are visualizing a male first when we think about a person? And and also then how do we how do we sort of undo that, right? And I have, I think I've shared on, on this podcast before, I have my own moments like that where when I was in grad school, um, and this was also something that she covered in her um, chapter on academia, uh, and I was like, ah, I've never heard someone else talk about this <laughs> before. So it was, it was fascinating. But I remember when I was in grad school, I was, you know, doing quite a bit of work on gender. And I was actually, I found as I was researching my papers that I was more likely to use a male author of, a, of a, an article, of a journal article, than I was to use a, a, some, an article written by a woman. And I started to realize that I would look at my bibliographies and I would note how many were men and how many were women. And it was real. The bias in my in my choices was real. And I was I was just kind of aghast because <laughs> I was I was researching gender. I was trying to understand how, you know, um, inequity or how gender was working in early modern literature, right? And so the idea that I was still defaulting to the male voice as the voice of authority was a moment on the female experience was just a, a, a light bulb moment for me where I thought, oh, I actually do believe that authority comes in a male voice. And I had to stop and go, oh, but my voice is female. So how do I hold my own like self-authority if I really believe that an authoritative voice is a male one? And so that's actually 
how I got into in part the work that I was doing with She Is Called and, and thinking, trying to think through the theology that we hold, that God is a man. We talk about God in the male pro- pronoun most of the time. We talk about God as father. We talk about God often as a man so that really in our vision, even if we believe God is spirit, when we picture God, when we think about God, very often there's a default male God, right? And so all of our experiences in relationship to that God I think often feel gendered and we have to assess that. So part of the work that I was doing with She Is Called and that I've continued to do less formally is to just kind of regularly try to expand our theology, not to say God isn't, you don't have to throw out the masculine pronoun for God, but if you can add to it the she or the they or the other things and actually let our, let our, vis, vis, like our vision, our imagination for God expand, that expands our theology and I, I think starts to, um, actually help us see ourselves as in the image of God in a way that we we don't if we're a woman talking about a masculine God. So I think this idea of the default male is just central to both what she's doing, which is not religious, right? She's not talking about theology. She's talking holy sociology, right? Um, And anthropology. And I'm saying, actually, I think some of this um, default male thinking is actually theological in its base and that our um, long time understanding and uh, of God as, as male are talking about God as male has actually impacted the way that we interact with our world and with each other. And that I think this is my I'm speaking my own opinion that actually I think our, our theology has to expand somewhat for us to not constantly think of, of male as the default male as the center against which everything else is measured male as the given against which everything else is measured, you know, um, so yeah, that's, that's my thinking on the default male and, and the theology that's attached to it. And I'd love your feedback thoughts. Well, it's interesting cause it's not just right. You've, you've got God, but more than that, you've got embodied God in the person of Jesus Christ embodied in the body of a man, right? He has a human body of a man. Um, and so our perfect human representative that leads humanity to redemption has a male body. Um, and the universal human representative that led humanity into sin, Adam had a male body. And so I think, I mean, I think you do see that popping up and I think it, it, it's a rebuke, I think, to the church to say, when you look at Jesus and you see him as perfect and you see him as the the redeemer um, and you see him as the, the ultimate human, he is not perfect because he is, a, has a male body. That's not, that's not what's being communicated there. Um, and I think we've, we sort of lumped that in with it and, and not focused on actual theologically relevant aspects of his humanity um, and, and may have absorbed sort of the wrong lesson from it. If we think that male bodies are better than female bodies because Jesus had a male body, um, because that's not the point of the story um, any more than, than the point of the, the um, creation narrative is that male bodies are superior to female bodies. Um, and I'll take a minute here to, to every, every chance I get, I like to, to mention the Jen Wilkin um, point that she makes uh, that the first thing that Adam sees when he when he sees Eve is not she's different, but that she is like me um, and, and same of my same, um, that he's looked at all these animals and not found someone like him and she is like him. And so that the, the first word on women in the Bible is that male and female are made in the image of God. So when we take away 
a lesson from the Bible that undermines that, then we're missing the point, I think. So I think, um, I think to that extent, I certainly would agree with you. Jessica, did you have thoughts about that? Yeah, my only thought about that, I think it's really interesting what both of y'all are saying, uh, is that I remember as a child being taught that Eve was the one that pulled Adam away. You know, she was tripping him up and mm-hmm. convincing him to partake of um, of the the fruit. Um, so I just thought that was interesting that, you know, even in that, I have this childhood memory of when that passage was introduced to me. Instead of instead of being taught that, you know, all that they both kind of partook yeah. and that's the fall. Uh, instead, I remember that, you know, well, Eve was coaxing him and coercing him into it. And I'm sure it was a very well-meaning Sunday school teacher who wanted to not have me like enticing my brother to come and do something wrong. But um, it is interesting that I think that that lodges itself as somehow if you are female and you think of Christ as being the savior um, and God, our father, I think that all kind of builds into if we're made in the image of God and yet my body is different then how then does that mean that we are just somewhat other um and i think it's it's worth kind of making sure that we understand um alexis like you said that you know our we need to make sure we have a theologically grounded perspective of male bodies that both adam and christ were male so it's not just default good that you are male and it's it's i mean i i share your perspective carla as well on on that that realization of my own complicity in this. Like I, I am guilty of this too. And I don't, I'm not in a position to be doing a lot of writing of footnotes right now, but when we have stuffed animals that need names, most of the names that come to my mind, I'm thinking of the stuffed animal as a male. It's not like most polar bears are male. I don't know why I thought of the polar bear as male when I was thinking of a name for it, but there is this idea of the default, right? You have the variation, the exception, uh, the subset um, as as female, so it's, it's been you know reading this book. It was very convicting to say, oh gosh, I do that. I I am a woman. I know, <laughs> I know this, and yet whether it's cultural or theological or some combination, probably of the two, that that male default is is part of my thinking um, as much as I wish it weren't. Goodness, I appreciate the way you use those words. You use subset. What else did you use? Uh, exception, variation. Um, yeah. I think that that's, yeah. that, yes, those are the things that I think it's so, it, it, this can be a hard thing to, to visualize. What we're talking about can be a hard thing to visualize. We experience it every day, right? Where there's, um, where, where there's a male expectation, there's the male default and we are, we are countered to, we're, we're other than it. Right. And, mm-hmm. and yet it can be a hard thing to actually see that that's what's happening to us. Um, and so I think that the idea that somehow we're, we're the exception to the rule, the rule is male. We're exception. Yeah. The, you know, the, the center is male. We're, we're outside the center. The, the given is male. We are, uh, other, you know, we're something else. I think we're that the that, atypical symptom, atypical, right? We're atypical <laughs> rather than yeah. we are, you know, so, and it, and it become, I think that for me, what I think about with it a lot is, is the psychological impact that ends up having on a person over the course of a lifetime when, when you're not even the authority on the symptoms that you're having, like you're, you know what I mean? Like you don't even get to say this. <laughs> it's, it's just a fascinating um, cycle of self-doubt. I think that, I, when I was reading this book, um, it, it happened in the, the midst of the Black Lives Matter um, protests. And it was interesting because I was thinking about just trying to imagine what it would be like to be in a culture where you are the minority. And I am 
not in the minority culturally. And so, um, but pondering on this made me think a little bit about how that, that otherness that Carla, that you're hinting to, and that self-doubt, um, that gave me a very different perspective, but a little bit of a, of a thought of like, oh, okay, so this is a bit of what it might perhaps be like, and I, and I don't want to presume that I would understand someone else's experience, um, so I don't want to compare them. <laughs> Instead, I'd rather just say that the otherness that I think we experience as women, I hadn't really considered how, um, how much of an impact it actually does have on you when you are living in a world that is designed um, for men and where your own observations of, as you said, your own symptoms um, are, are not um, counted as typical, even though they are actually typical for a female. Right. And I think that what I totally with you, Jessica, and it's a thing that I wanted to bring up as well, that I think that default male in gender is, is our go-to, right? And default white in race mm -hmm. is our go-to. And white is seen in the same way as maleness, as the given, as the center, as the thing against which everything else is measured, not another one of the things, you know? Um, and, and to me, this comes with hierarchical thinking, whatever's at the top of the hierarchy becomes the default against which everything else is measured. And um, in a white, supremacist culture, <laughs> whiteness is that thing. Um, and in a patriarchy, masculinity is that thing. So, um, yeah, I think that they're not, they're not misaligned or they are analogous in terms of, of the way that they work, you know? Well, in the interest of time, I'm going to go ahead and move us on to our second angle to discuss. Um, and that's specifically how some of these principles apply in the church. Uh, it raises a whole constellation of questions. So if, if her basic premise is we have a data gap um, women are invisible, their needs, their experiences, their bodies um, are, are all invisible. Um, what does that mean for the church? So I, I'm kind of opening this up to you guys because I'm, I'm curious. Do you think there are data gaps in the church? Is it a problem? And how do we address them specifically? I know this is kind of a lot of questions to give you at once, but specifically um, her solution of female representation in all spheres as a solution to women being invisible and to having these data gaps. Um, is that the best or only way to address them? Um, and specifically, we'll talk about what that means for complementarian contexts. So kind of a lot of things, but I'm, I'm curious, um, Jessica, maybe we can start with you. Do you think there are data gaps in the church? Do you think that's a problem? And how do we solve it if it is? Well, so I think that Given given the number of data gaps that exist in other places, I would be surprised if there are not data gaps. <laughs> However, you know, one of the, I think, most conspicuous um, pieces of information that just pops out to me is thinking of women's ministry and the way that some things are positioned towards women. And you do have some men's ministry, but it tends not to be... Um, it's, it's kind of more seen as the default, that the things that are available to the church are just the church's ministries. And the women's ministry tends to be more of a very pink and flowery thing that is over on the side um, and done separate and in a very different style. And so that has long been something that I found a bit um, concerning. Just personally, I would rather have just a solid um, 
if you're going to provide something for the church, have it be something that is good for for many of the church members, not just simply good for someone based upon their um, whether or not they are a male or a female. Um, so and then in terms of how do you solve it and with representation, you know, I think. I, I feel like I would have to think about this one more in terms of identifying what those gaps are. But I, I do think representation in terms of understanding um, understanding how the church is meeting the needs of the individuals. So when we meet and how we gather and what that looks like, because women are often the ones who are caring for the children. And we've had, I know in our own family, I, I probably spent um, – and Alexis, you may have done the same thing at our old church. I probably spent a good two hour, two years with my one child that just refused to go in childcare, and my husband was leading the music. And so I probably spent two years sitting upstairs in the quiet nursing mom's room with somewhat sketchy um, audio of the of the church service, just because that's the church service happened to fall during my child's nap, and that's what it looked like. Um, so. I, if we could find ways to have more, um, but and that's just one small piece of, of of life. I think we pass through many different um, life phases and cycles that have more caring responsibilities, so it might look different at different times. Um, but I'll kind of kick it back to y'all. I think one of the things I think that I found interesting about the book is that with her, so on one level, I agree that that increased representation um, is is a way to make sure that women are more visible. I think that's a pretty, pretty obvious statement. But I think what's interesting is that she seemed to think that the best way for women to become visible is for them to be able to have a voice and also power at the same time. Um, so sort of not just information, but uh, a position of authority or power to make that information effective. Uh, so women as CEOs or women on legislative um bodies or or things like that um and i i think in the in the secular world i, I completely agree um i as i've said before on this podcast and, and on the sort of sub podcast of complementarian ish um i am complementarian in my theology so obviously there are specific there are some roles that i do not believe the bible uh, endorses to be opened up to women I didn't realize people have different views on that. And for those who are who come down in a more egalitarian way and are open to women in a pastorate or women as elders, um, then I think that issue of rep representation in many ways becomes a lot simpler uh, because you have that possibility of a woman pastor or women on your elder board. But I think even those who are complementarian in their theology are not left powerless to address the, the data gap. And I would agree that there is one. Um, because as believers, we shouldn't require someone to have power for us to listen to them. Um, so I think a godly elder board and godly pastors, regardless of their sex, ought to be willing to listen to those that they serve, regardless of whether those individuals are in a position of power. Um, so I think that it's it's very important, and I think it's probably a fair criticism of many of our churches as to whether we do that, but I think an elder board that seeks out and listens to women's voices will be able to accomplish. Um, I think the, we'll be able to deal with that data gap in, in a, in a similar way to someone who's, who is um, allowing representation through all church offices. Um, so I think, 
I think that's one point that I want to make is that as, as, as believers, we shouldn't require someone to have power before we listen. Um, and then there's a couple examples I want to mention. I've mentioned Jen Wilkin already, but I think what she does is really interesting and what her church has done is really interesting. Uh, the, the church she's part of, the Village Church, has put out a statement, and I'll put it in the show notes. They continue to hold to complementarian theology for the position of teaching pastor and elder, but they've made an explicit policy that every other office in the church, that they will actively seek to staff them with both men and women. Um, so so they have a, a short list of things that they believe the Bible teaches should be uh, offices held by qualified men. But for everything else, um, they're actively trying to increase representation. So I think that's a really interesting way to approach uh, to approach it and trying to make sure that those voices are heard. Um, also, Jen Wilkin has some great stories of how some of the churches she's been a part of sought to think well about the needs of the women in the congregation. And she specifically mentions the church paying for childcare while she would prepare for her the teaching time when she would be teaching women's studies um, or uh, the Bible study that I'm a part of where the church provides childcare for the moms um, on our Wednesday morning study so that we can, they're, they're aware that our needs are different than the typical male who is working during the day and maybe doesn't have those childcare responsibilities. Um, and they also have an evening study realizing that not all women are able to come to a morning study in the middle of the week. So I think, I think having policies that reflect seeking out and listening to the women in your church um, are ways that we can help to deal with this uh, data gap um, in a complement complementarian context. So again, I, I don't, I realize there are other people with different views. My point is, whether you're egalitarian or complementarian, you're not powerless to deal with this, this data gap. We can do something to close that gap. Uh, Carla, did you want to speak up on this at all? Sure, I can be I can be quick. I, I we and we've known this, Alexis, so I fall on the on the egalitarian side of, of that uh, conversation and believe very much that representation at all levels is is essential to uh, the full spiritual development of of women in the congregation, of children, of young women in the congregation, um, and I I think that that um, those are those are differences in the way we understand scripture, the way we understand theology, and there's no like um, I appreciate the your the what you're saying about the way that a church that believes in complementarianism can still address data gaps, and I think that that um, is likely real. I think that the um, I mean, it is real. I'm sorry. I, I sound like an elitist jerk, <laughs> but but I think that you the do thing not. That I, I think that the thing that I I I feel deeply. I, one of the things I'm thinking about that brings us back to the book a little bit is where she talked about Sheryl Sandberg and the pregnancy parking, right? And how sometimes men just actually don't even know the question to ask to get the data gap filled because they don't have the experience of being in a female body or having a female experience of church. So even if they're going to women to seek answers to questions, they might not know the questions to ask, you know, and it's only by being at the table in the conversation, in the depth of the theological conversation and in the church policy conversation that that a woman could could actually have contribution at the foundational level of what's happening. Um, so so I I agree that a, a an elder board that was all male that had a deep intent to um, fill a data gap by going to the women in their congregation could fill it somewhat. I would say that they may not even know where to start to ask the questions that would fill the gap. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, so that's one thing. And then I think that, um, yeah, I just think that uh, it, it feels it, it feels um, just 
problematic in my being that that a group that had power would not be made up of all people who actually have power because the women in a congregation, even if they don't have decision-making power, do have power just by their very existence. So like for a group not to represent all the power that's actually there and to have all that power influencing what's happening, I think is, is for me uh, a struggle. Um, so, but, but again, complementarian churches exist. They're doing really good work in the world there. So I'm not they and addressing that as a part of this conversation and figuring out how that works, I think is super important. So I appreciate the fact that you and I are coming at it from different angles. If I can, well, add it, it makes sense too that right part of the reason, like sort of like you were saying before with a with a chicken and egg situation, right? If 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 what you believe about how how power is represented or how things are done fairly or how things are done rightly and morally, that's going to affect the conclusions that you draw about how a church ought to be structured. So of course, I mean, I, I completely understand that that that. I follow the reasoning of why that why you believe that that's necessary. I guess is what I'm saying. Like I understand that 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 logic is is tracking. Um, and I agree. Like we're we we have some disagreements on premises, but I understand. I always tell my husband like I need you to tell me that I'm not crazy. Like even if you disagree with me, like be like no 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 this tracks, which you don't need me to tell you that you're not crazy. But I just I want to affirm I understand why you would would get to that conclusion given things that are important and that you care about and that, that I, and I I care about them too, but um, yeah, it it makes sense that, that those priorities and those beliefs would be worked out that way. If that makes sense in a not condescending way. (laughs) I think both of us holding our opinions, you know, for real, like we both hold them, you know? And, And so I think that, I don't feel condescended to. I appreciate, I appreciate that. And, and I, you know, having grown up in complementarianism and I also understand where your logic is track, tra- tracking and don't have a sense of it being um, out of step with the way that you understand biblical text and the way, like the way that you believe right. in biblical texts, not the way that we don't have, it's not an understanding struggle. It's a, it's a belief difference. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah. I think this is why I love having these conversations because we get to actually engage and and agree that we disagree on things, but do so respectfully and appreciate where the other person is coming from. Uh, Alexis, I want to touch on something. And Carla, I think it kind of touches on something you were, you were talking about. One of the experiences I've had is um, having been at a church where there was just from the top all the way down, there was deep and abiding respect for both male and female and a real sense that wisdom and I don't know that the Lord that how, how do you even put it that the Bible doesn't say that the male is better right and so because that's not the perspective coming from the top down in the same way that Alexis you were talking about the village and how they seek to have every single other role other than these very narrowly lined up ones filled with both men and women, I think it also is really valuable when you have a leader who has a very deep understanding of the fact that we are all made in the image of God, and therefore the experiences and the thoughts and the perspectives and the concerns of all of the members are quite relevant. I've, I've seen that make a very large difference. And, and to your point, Carla, I mean, I understand completely, and I should I should specify, I fall on the complementarian-ish side of things. So um, so I tend to be more in Alexis's camp, although I completely see where you are coming from. Um, but, I, you know, I see, uh, Carla, where you're coming from with saying that 
there will be questions that you won't even know how to ask. And I guess part of my thinking and what I've seen happen is when you have those two groups, male and female, respect one another and partner together to endeavor to understand these things with grace with each other, that I think you actually see that, um, I don't know, the compassionate seeking to understand um, and seeking out the counsel of, even if they're not on the elders board um, or something like that. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense to me, absolutely. And I don't disagree. I do think that there are ways of interdependence between genders that can be quite beautiful, I think, and, and really um, effective. And I, and I think that's what I hear you describing. I think that my, I have a, I still have a internal rebellion that says, so then the good idea of the woman gets taken to the male elder board and then the male, el she's still invisible. They yeah. still get, they still get credit for whatever decision. And I'm, I'm not even, I'm not like, credit hoarding, but it's, it's right. One of the, one of the deals with invisible, the invisibility of women is that throughout the ages, an idea that was a woman gets taken on by the male power structure and they get credit for it. She addresses it in science. She addresses it in computing. Um, you know, she addresses it even in the way that we teach history to our children, that, that a girl up until she's in kindergarten has a sense of, of, um, her own uh, ability, her own intelligence, her own, and then we start teaching history that's almost all male-centric, and she starts to see herself, it's the intelligence gap I think she talked about, she starts to see herself as not impactful, not having the ability to change history, not having the intelligence to change history, or if you go all the way back and actually look, women were making these, these historic moments often, and we don't represent them. So I guess I have a similar sense of but that's what then happens in, in church culture. And there's a, there's my concern for my female children would be that they think that spiritual progress, spiritual guidance only gets framed in a masculine context. And they don't actually have the same proximity to their own spirituality in that case. <laughs> they have, they have a distance from my children have a, and I will say that I had a distance from my own spirituality because I wasn't the spiritually authoritative being as a woman. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And I, I thought you did a really good job of, um, you could have just everything I babbled on, you could have just summarized in your nice little <laughs> sentence. I thought that was a really beautiful way of describing it. Um, so I think what you said makes sense and I understand where you're coming from. So it does. Well, we are running a little short on time, but I want to make sure we uh, at least talk a little bit about uh, Criado Perez's treatment of unpaid labor. So, um, uh, Jessica, did you want to talk a little bit about this, or do you want me to go ahead and, and start? So, why don't you why don't you go ahead and get started on it? Okay. So the 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 way I want to tee this up is is in her discussion. So unpaid labor comes up throughout the book. Um, it is something that that falls disproportionately on women. Um, kind of across the globe. Uh, and there's a whole chapter um, where Criado Perez uh, argues, I think persuasively, um, that unpaid labor should be included in uh, the calculation of uh, GDP, gross domestic product. Um, and, uh, right, I have that right. That's what GDP stands for, right? You got it. Okay, I just had this moment of like, oh no, what if that's not the right acronym? But um, anyway, <laughs> um, 
So anyway, she talks about that and says, look, unpaid labor has a tremendous value to a nation and we shouldn't limit our GDP just to when money changes hands. We need to find a way to calculate and include unpaid labor um, in that in that calculus. And I thought that was wonderful. I agreed with that. I thought that was super helpful. Um, I know I have always felt that my unpaid labor had value. My mom always felt that hers had value. And I would love to see that acknowledged in the way we talk about GDP. In the next chapter, um, she talks about um, how important it is for us to increase women's participation in the paid workforce uh, because it helps GDP. <laughs> and, uh, and I really struggle with that because in just the previous section, she had said unpaid labor should be counted. And so if it should be counted and there wasn't even really an acknowledgement of like until that happens, we can increase GDP by having women participate more in the paid workforce. Um, but just sort of they existed right right side by side. And it was really frustrating. Um, and it seems to reflect an underlying assumption that that came up kind of throughout the book, that from Criado Perez's perspective, paid work is always better than unpaid work. At least that, that's the impression that I um, that I got. And, and I will say this is leaving aside the possibility of like some kind of universal basic income, right? So if we right. pay people to do the unpaid work in their own home, yeah. um, if, if, you know, someone wants to cut me a check to watch my kids, that would be a little bit different. Um, but, but barring that, um, yeah, it's, I, it's, it's, I, it is, it is better to have paid work than unpaid work. And that sort of by extension, the best scenario it sounded like was for women to be doing paid work and for other people to be being paid to do the work that was previously the unpaid labor. Right. That's what I gathered out of it too. And I, I found it interesting that her solution was basically to like commodify unpaid care work and, and just force it into the existing system and like trade. So Alexis, I could come over to your house and take care of your children. And, you know, you could go over to, you could go be a lawyer. And so that then makes it appropriate that I'm getting paid and that's creating a job. But I, I found that to be a little bit of a false choice that it was, it was teeing it up to only to make it the appropriate choice that you would leave the house to then get paid labor, that paid labor is better. Um, and I also felt like it didn't acknowledge the other choices that a woman, a woman might want to make. And it's not always a costless endeavor. Like she talks about swapping out homemade meals for ready-made meals. Um, and, and I think that has trade-offs as I think our, our nation's waistline can sometimes show that, it's not always exactly the same. And I think the style of childcare is also, that's another thing where depending on the child, it might make more sense or less sense to choose a certain style of childcare. So I think what I found frustrating, um, you know, when you're thinking about like these choices, I don't think we need to be in the position of assigning greater or lesser value to these choices, whether you choose to stay and do your unpaid labor or outsource it to someone else and choose to do something different, either by necessity or by desire. Um, but I found it frustrating that there wasn't even a remark that like these things aren't always equivalent in someone's own value system. And so, you know, shifting them just into the counted GDP is not the same thing as ensuring that this work is really viewed as a crucial, valuable contribution to our society, which it is. Um, and Alexis, you and I had spoken a little bit about how, um, you know, there are some women, like I'll, I'll take myself as an example. So 
we're in the middle of a pandemic. My background is in emerging infectious diseases and biohazardous threat agents. You could very easily make the argument that where I should be right now is in a local public health office doing contact tracing or helping partner with epidemiologists and controlling spread um, and advising people on how they can go about living their lives in a safe manner. And I have wrestled with that, but I also know that in our household, we have a child who does not handle change well. And so for our family unit, we've decided that it actually makes more sense for me not to be engaging much either as a volunteer or as a paid worker um, outside of doing some, some advising. Uh, so that I can provide the stability that our household needs. And that's a luxury that we can afford to do. And many families don't have that luxury. But it's one that I think in Criado Perez's world, I think it, she's talking as though increasing choices. She's talking as though um, if you if, if everyone starts outsourcing more and getting out and doing paid labor, I don't think she's acknowledging the changes that that might have to other people's choices, like the one I'm choosing to make. Like, I think that if you start fiddling with the system in one area, that's not to say that we shouldn't, but I think it could have unintended consequences. And I, I was troubled by her not acknowledging these other choices that women might choose to make, like myself. Um, so I'd be curious, Carla, do you have thoughts that you want to, um, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I'm, I'm with both of you in, in terms of like um, trying to shift the conversation of value out of monetary value. And that I think is um, actually really tricky to do in, in our culture. Part of things being invisible is that they don't have monetary value. That's that's how especially I would say in, in a um, and I, I'm not anti-capitalist. I feel like I'm the like super leftist human here, <laughs> but in a capitalist culture, we really do see, we, we really do attach um, visibility and importance to things that make money. Um, and and uh, so, so there is a certain amount of like, by attaching a monetary value to unpaid labor to, to assess GDP, you actually are trying to make that unpaid labor more visible, right? So that we can at least see what's happening and see how much it contributes and how necessary it is actually to our to our um, gross domestic domestic, uh, uh, I'm, now I'm doing it, Alexis. <laughs> um, so, so like those things are actually quite necessary, and I think that part of what she's trying to say is let's just make that visible. Let's figure out how to make that visible. Um, I didn't feel as much of a sense of her saying that women should be working to be valuable. That that actually is a better option for women. I can see where that where that fell I, and, and how that was in, in reading it, that it's not not there, but I didn't feel like that was her main point. Um, I, I also felt like part of what I heard her arguing often was, what if we took better care of the female experience of parenting by actually giving extended maternity leaves, by making it mm -hmm. possible for women to work remotely so that they can do both by, you know, various things where it did feel to me like she was trying to take into account the female experience of work. Um, and I think that, and, and allowing perhaps a woman to have both options. Um, and I think my, my specific situation is that I was mostly home with my children. I worked part-time or as a contractor or as an organizer, you know, um, most of my marriage for 15 years. Right. Um, and then I'm recently divorced. And so I find myself now having to shift into, 
um, full-time work schedule and, and figuring out how to balance that with my, with my parenting and particularly in a pandemic, that's, that's challenging. Um, but it's necessary. And so, and I think that one of the things that is, that is hitting me midlife doing this is that all of the things I were, I, I got a master's degree. I started an organization. I, you know, ghost wrote a book. I freelance wrote and I did a lot of things in my like part-time work world, but I didn't create a career. So now starting midlife and trying to say somebody should pay me a living wage for full-time work and I don't have like the thing for which you pay me, like the career label. Um, it's just, it's just a fascinating moment of like, um, of just sort of gender, gender sussing <laughs> where my, my uh, former spouse and co-parent is an engineer. So that's a super recognizable career, right? That, mm -hmm. that one could pay a living wage for. And meanwhile, I've cared for children, done all this other work. And, and so starting here in midlife, I don't actually have career. So um, just to throw in there, like my context for reading some of this, part of me thought, oh, goodness, if the, if the things she's saying were available in terms of paid childcare and whatever, it would make this transition for me a lot easier. And yet, I really, really valued my time home with my kids. I, I wouldn't have wanted to make another choice there. Um, and, and so I think figuring out how to make all those options available to people is part of what she's she's sussing. And by giving unpaid labor some kind of monetary mark is her way to me to try to make it visible so that people can at least see that this is happening. Sure. Well, and I think one of the things that that I want to that that I want to make sure we don't do is fall into the trap that Criado Perez actually explains earlier on in the book, she's talking about um, advancement opportunities at Google, I believe, and how men were putting themselves forward for promotions more and women were generally not doing that as much. Uh, the confidence gap, so to speak, right, where you had, um, you know, men going out and, and selling themselves for these promotions and, and women speaking about themselves in, um, in different terms or maybe requiring a higher level of qualifications for themselves before they would even apply. And she criticizes, I think fairly, Google, uh, because Google's solution was we will train the women to be more like the men. We'll train them to be more confident and to go out and, and apply for these promotions. And Criado Perez points out, actually, there'd been some research that indicated that men tend to overestimate their abilities or their intelligence, I think it was, and women tend to have a more accurate perspective on their intelligence. And so she, she points out that maybe a better thing would have been to train the men to wait to apply for a promotion until they were actually qualified, um, rather than treating women, again, as the atypical women as the problem, we, we need to fix you because you're broken, you're a woman, so we fix you by making you more male. And some of the way that she talked about paid work um, sounded a little like the way we fix you, women, is by making you succeed in terms that, that men use or that, that men succeed with. Um, and, and I know that's not entirely what she was going for. She's obviously very concerned about vulnerable women uh, who do not have access to a reliable income stream, even if they're associated with a man who has a job that doesn't necessarily translate into them having access to a reliable income stream. Uh, so she's very concerned about making sure that women have that access. And so I understand that that her heart is in caring for and protecting and, and offering opportunities to women. So I don't want to attribute that to her necessarily, but there was a little flavor of that that I felt like 
kind of came through sometimes. And you mentioned the pandemic, and this is one of the things I've been thinking about. Um, our family has chosen, and we're, we're in a position where we can choose this, which I know many, many, many families cannot. My husband works, and I work very, I mean, very minimally. I'm, I'm a city alderman, essentially, is what I am. And it's a part-time job that I basically do occasional evenings. Um, and so what that has meant is that the closure of childcare facilities in our community and changes in the schooling system basically have passed us by with, you know, minimal impact because I was already the primary childcare taker of our children and the educator of our children. Um, and again, that's not a choice everyone can make or that everyone wants to make or that everyone should make. But I think it's fair to say in this, my particular situation, it has been a benefit to me and to my family that I was not doing paid work outside the home that was then going to to butt up against caring for my kids or educating my kids. I was free to do that. Um, and I just, I really, I completely am on board with, with Creado Perez when she talks about making women free to seek paid labor and getting rid of obstacles that prevent them from doing that or make it more difficult for them to do that. I would just want to explicitly expand that freedom to say, I want them to be free to choose whether they seek paid work or whether they choose to continue doing the work um, and focusing on work within their own home or caring for family members, uh, kids or older, older, older relatives or whomever. So I think that's, that's the piece that I felt like I would have loved to see her push in on a little bit to say, Hey, the only way to improve your situation is not to, to abandon or minimize because you can't ever abandon it, not to minimize your unpaid work uh, and trade it as much as you can for paid work. But, to be able to choose freely what's best for you and your family. And I, I, I love how you put that, Alexis. I think the other thing, and I hinted on this before, um, I would just love to see this type of caring work, whether it's for small children or aging adults, I would love to see it valued in society at large. And I think she would yes. that too. I think though, instead of emphasizing the value it has towards making us you know, a society that you want to live in, that you want your children to grow up in. Um, I, I felt like instead of emphasizing the need for it and not just the need, but really the value of doing it well, I felt like it was instead turned into something that you could kind of supplant out my work for someone else's work. When it's not always the same. Me caring for an elderly relative may be superior to someone else caring for or vice versa. But recognizing regardless that it's really important and that it's a key. And I think she is trying to do that. She just wants to have it counted in a certain way. And she's, I think she's bumping up against the fact that it is difficult to create this type of value um, in a society where we traditionally haven't really talked about it in terms of monetary value. And how do you create that sense of value and recognizing that it is important and giving it its due in society um, without having a, a good channel through which to to quantify it? Well, can I add one thing? It's an and to what you all are saying. But because the book is about data bias and and like uh, design of like our societies and those kinds of things, um, I feel like part of what she brought up again and again was how our benefits are like so women will work if they have to 
you know, two part-time jobs rather than a full-time job. So therefore they don't earn the same kinds of benefits um, and social services and those kinds of things um, as being either completely unemployed or full-time employed. Um, so part of what I felt her trying to say was to, to trouble the idea of what, because um, Alexis, you were saying you felt a sense of her trying to move us toward a masculine expression of work in order for that work to be to be visible. And part of what I heard her saying as well is that there actually is a way that women tend to work and it's usually more part-time jobs, more gigs that they're fitting between childcare responsibilities and those kinds of things. And we don't recognize those things in our social services or in our benefits situations in a way that would actually validate that work and make it, make it uh, societally feasible for women's, the way that women work to be part of our societal structure rather than secondary to it or alongside it. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, we are just about out of time, so I'm going to go ahead and move us on to passing on our time of, of uh, sharing recommendations. Uh, Jessica, did you have a recommendation for us? I did. So if you are intrigued by data gaps, and uh, there are plenty of them, I thought a book that was really interesting is Expecting Better by Emily Oster. And so she talks about when she got pregnant, an economist got pregnant, basically, and then thought, wait a minute, the data that's out here is really terrible. Because if you think the women, the data on just plain old women is bad, the data on pregnant women is appalling. <laughs> there, there is none. So check out her book. It's a really interesting read, whether you're pregnant, have been pregnant, or know someone who is pregnant. You'll find it interesting regardless. And there's a sequel for preschool, like uh, up to yeah. preschool age called Crib Sheet that's also excellent. I, oh, okay. I haven't gotten to read it yet. Maybe that should yeah, be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's your like car, some of the car seat stuff and some of the, I mean, some of the, yeah, nice. nursing and all of that after baby up to um, like, yeah, early baby stuff. Um, wonderful. Well, that is a great recommendation and I second that. And she's also got a really good website currently about COVID-19 that's trying to deal with childcare and COVID stuff. So Emily Oster is great all around. Um, I wanted to recommend two things. One, our illustrious founder, Victoria Reynolds Farmer, is involved now with an organization called Enrich Her um, that is uh, trying to fund women-led and black-owned businesses. Um, so we'll include that link in our, in our show notes as well. But if you're looking for a way to sort of practically affect um, women and uh, women of color um, out in the world trying to um, expand their opportunities and their access and all these different things that we've been talking about. Um, you can go to uh, that link and, and explore that opportunity with Enrich Her. So that's a great opportunity. And then my other recommendation is a book that's been on my to read list. I haven't got to it yet, but I'm very excited to. It's called His Testimonies, My Heritage, uh, Women of Color on the Word of God. It is an exposition of Psalm 119 written by women of color. So I think each, uh, contributor takes a, a chunk of Psalm 119. So um, knowing that the church maybe doesn't always elevate the voices of women the way that it could or ought to, and particularly voices of color, um, that to me, I'm really excited to hear from these women um, and learn from them in their exposition of Psalm 119. Carla, what's your recommendation? Yeah, um, so mine is a little bit academic, but I'm just going to do it. Um, she opens, uh, Criado Perez opens the book with a quote by Simone de Beauvoir, um, and I'm just going to read it. It's representation of the world like the world itself is the work of men. They describe it from their own point of view, which they confuse with the absolute truth. Um, so I am going to recommend a book by Simone de Beauvoir called The Second Sex, which is sort of where some of this conversation um, around the, the like default male. She was one of the one of the first academics, I think, to start taking that on. So 
I think we should Un- back to her intelligence. <laughs> yeah, another great, um, another great recommendation. We've also got some other related episodes that we'll link to in the show notes. Um, we, uh, Victoria and I went on an episode of City of Man uh, talking about femininity and what it means. We did a, a couple of episodes on Dorothy Sayers, who who explores some of the similar themes um, uh, uh, to De Beauvoir as well um, in her works. Uh, and then, Jessica, you mentioned our episode on vaccines that, that deals with some of how to think about scientific um, information and studies and we have episodes on the patriarchy and complementarianism and an episode called all the rage that has to do with division of unpaid labor so we've talked about a lot of these themes in some other episodes that i would encourage you to check out Uh, with that thank you for listening to the christian feminist podcast we'd love to hear from you if you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows or if you just want to drop us a line you can do so at christian feminist podcast at gmail.com You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Carla Godwin and Jessica Harden, I'm Alexis Neal. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss the life of Harriet Tubman. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.